Hi, Canterbury Gardens Church family and uh, any visitors who are with us today. Andrew Cadet is my name, and it's just a real privilege to be able to share with you uh, this morning uh, from God's Word. I was uh, uh, really delighted, honoured uh, when Shabu asked if uh, I'd be willing to um, just share something of uh, the Word uh, with you. Um, I've known Shabu for quite a while, actually, through my work with City to City Australia, where I serve uh, as uh, the CEO of that uh, since it started uh, right back in 2014. I also serve as the senior minister of a church uh, up in Sydney. It's called Christ Church Inner West. It's in that sort of inner urban area of Sydney. Um, and we have three sites uh, and a number of congregations trying to serve the Lord and be faithful to him and be a witness to him here, just as you're doing in Canterbury Gardens. Um, it's, a it's a real honour, as I say, to be able to share with you this morning. And um, you've caught us in the middle of a series on Philippians. And um, we pick it up this morning in Philippians chapter 3, uh, which comes on, hot on the heels of Paul doing some pretty nice stuff, actually. He's been writing about his two colleagues, Timothy and Epaphroditus, and how they've really followed the example of Jesus in what we've come to call the J-curve, down into death and then vindicated in resurrection. And so uh, it's at that point that we're picking up in the series. Hi, my name is Phoebe and this is Hannah. Today, we're gonna be reading Philippians 3, verses one through to 11. Finally, my brothers and sisters rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is not troublesome to me and for you, it is a safeguard. Beware of the dogs, beware of the evil workers, beware of those who mutilate the flesh. For it is we who are the circumcision, who worship in the spirit of God and boast in Christ Jesus and have no confidence in the flesh, even though I too have reason for confidence in the flesh. If anyone else has reason to be confident in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day, a member of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew born of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. Yet whatever gains I had, these I have come to regard as lost because of Christ. More than that, I regard everything as lost because of the surpassing, surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things, and I regard them as rubbish, in order that I may gain Christ, and be found in him, not having righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but one that comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that, that based on faith. I want to know I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the sharing of his sufferings by becoming like him in his death. If somehow I may attain the resurrection from the dead. It's one of the rarest and at the same time one of the sweetest things to know a person who is both genuinely good and intelligent and competent and at the same time who is someone who's simultaneously humble and self-effacing and modest. That is one of the most challenging needles to thread, to be chock full of righteousness without even a whiff of self-righteousness. It's far easier to fall on one side or the other of that continuum. On, on the one hand, there is a pandemic of self-loathing and self-hatred in our culture at the moment. People who look at themselves, they know that on the things that matter, on things that count in their eyes and in the eyes of others, 
they fall short, way short, horribly, miserably short. And so they, I mean, they, don't, they don't tell anyone about it, but they just loathe and hate themselves for it. Their self-talk is, you loser. That's on the one hand. On the other hand, and actually perhaps causally connected because it becomes a way of papering over such self-loathing, there is a pandemic of self-righteousness also in our culture. You can tell because self-righteousness is almost always accompanied by contempt, which then kind of spills over into anger at those who do not share the particular acts or attributes of righteousness that are deemed to be essential. And of course, the, the pinnacle of this posture is the cancel culture that makes so many topics taboo to talk about, so many opinions impossible to hold, let alone raise in polite conversation. You may know something of this Roller coaster, this kind of seesaw, the, the instability of moving between the self-loathing that comes with not performing, not having the right credentials, not conforming to the approved standards of behaviour or belief, especially when someone cancels you. And then the switch, the pivot, the elation of knowing that you're righteous, especially because you can find someone who's not righteous and who you can look down on. Now, I, I say that this is a current cultural phenomenon, but it's not a modern phenomenon. I'd suggest that it's endemic to the human heart. We are such fragile and fickle creatures, so feeble in our own sense of ourselves and our standing with others. And the passage that we've had read for us in Philippians 3, as we go through our work in the book of Philippians, reflects directly on this. And it gives us the resources to do better than that to hold together, both being gloriously, actually righteous, not, not in some theoretical or theological sense, actually righteous in our behaviour and virtue, and at the same time to not have even a whiff of self-righteousness about us at all. To have enormously deep and resilient reservoirs of personal strength and confidence, wielded in a way that doesn't hurt people, doesn't crush people or make them feel small around you, but only lifts them and builds them up. The, the Apostle Paul, uh, not surprisingly, uses slightly different language, but don't let that fool you. This is exactly the issue that he's addressing here in Philippians chapter 3. It's, it's there in verse 3 of the chapter in the description of what the opponents of Paul in Philippi are doing. They're boasting. Boasting. Yeah, immediately he clarifies what he means by that. He cashes it out in terms of confidence, the basis or foundation for confidence in life. And as he works with this, he talks about what and how he regards or values in terms of different aspects of his life, the things and the ways that he ascribes meaning, making value to those attributes. It's, it's, it's actually pretty intense, Philippians chapter 3. And as he does so, he unfolds the secret of being righteous without being self-righteous. We're going to look at it under three headings. First, righteousness. Second, self-righteousness. And then finally, pretty obviously, the secret of being the one without the other. So first then, righteousness. Chapter 3 starts in a strange kind of way. Paul's going along very happily. He's commending his two colleagues, Timothy and Epaphroditus, who've lived the Jesus J-curve in exemplary fashion. And his conclusion to that in chapter 3, verse 1, is to encourage the Philippians likewise to rejoice in the Lord. 
just like the two amigos have done, whether life is good or whether life is hard. But then the mood turns. He's aware that there's danger on the horizon. And so uh, perhaps rehearsing things that he's previously said to these brothers and sisters in Philippi, he warns them. And the terms of the warning are very stark. Verse 2, beware of the dogs, he says. Beware of the evil workers. Beware of those who mutilate the flesh. Uh, the, the clue to what he's getting at is in that last phrase, those who mutilate the flesh. It's clarified uh, by the first part of Paul's response in verse 3, for it is we, he says, who are the circumcision. Um, what, what's going on here is that, as was reasonably common in New Testament times, uh, we find that there are some Christians who've come from a Jewish heritage who are deeply convicted that the only way to be a real Christian, the, the, the absolutely necessary thing for being a real Christian is to obey the old covenant Torah laws, including and especially the commandment to be circumcised, which, if you're an adult male, was pretty intense. Um, circumcision had always had a special place in Old Covenant Israel's obedience to God. It was, after all, the Lord himself who'd said that circumcision was his covenant with Israel in their flesh. Uh, it wasn't a hygiene thing. It wasn't an optional thing. It was a fundamental belonging thing, at, at least for the boys and men. And so every male newborn was circumcised, every single one of them. And, and what these what Paul calls dogs were doing, is to systematically pay a visit to all the churches that Paul was connected to that were outside of Israel and so consisted of non-Jewish Gentile people and say to them, look, you're only halfway there. You're only half Christians. You're just mudbloods, if, uh, to take a Harry Potter term, until you get serious and you get circumcised. To which Paul is emphatic. He says, watch out for them. Beware of them, dogs, evil workers. Because, he says, it is we who are the circumcision. It is we who worship in the spirit of God and boast in Christ Jesus and have no confidence in the flesh. Now, it's really important to see what Paul's actually getting at here. The issue is not the act of circumcision itself or, or, in fact, any of the other Old Covenant laws. They may well be good and right in themselves. And, in fact, uh, interestingly, if you read the book of Romans, a large part of why the apostle wrote the letter to the Romans is to defend the right of Jewish Christians to do exactly this, that is, to keep their Old Covenant laws. He's, he's protecting them. You see this in chapter 14 and 15 especially. He's protecting them from a kind of vicious anti-Semitism, sort of the inverse of what we're seeing here in Philippians, which said the, the opposite, that said they had to stop being Jewish in order to be Christian. No, no, Paul's theological issue underneath this is the retrograde compulsion. What, what Paul couldn't stand was making it compulsory for God's new covenant people to obey God's old covenant law. That was going backwards from the direction that God was going. That's theologically what's going on here, but even that's not quite his point. 
the point that the Apostle is making is absolutely brilliant. What Paul recognises is what I'm going to call a deep psycho-spiritual danger of misplaced confidence, of a boasting that is in anything other than Jesus Christ. You, you, you see where he goes. He says, we are the circumcision. That is to say, we New Covenant Jew plus Gentile church, we are the true people of God. We are the ones who worship in the spirit of God precisely because we boast in Jesus Christ and conversely we boast not one bit in the flesh. And, and the brilliance of this, you see, is precisely that the concept of the flesh starts out literally, the, the, the actual little bit of flesh involved in circumcision, and then it expands its range of meaning to be anything, anything at all, in which a person might boast or put their confidence. Which leads us uh, to point two, self-righteousness. Let's, let's just pause a moment, slow down, make sure we've uh, heard what is it the apostle is saying. When he talks about boasting or putting, putting confidence, what he's referring to is that universal human longing to self-identify as one of the good people. One of the good people. It's profoundly important to us that we know of ourselves that we are not a bad person. How, how often have you heard that cheesy phrase in soap operas? I'm not a bad person. But instead, the bad people are out there. And I'm not one of them. I'm one of the good people. Now, ultimately, that's what righteousness is. It's the standing of being one of the good people. And the point that the apostle is making is simply this. What it is to put confidence in the flesh is to make the foundation of your sense of yourself as one of the good people to be some attribute about you, some aspect or element of your past or your performance that means that you belong to the good guys. Um, I, I say fairly often, I think one of the primary functions of the nightly news is to reinforce again and again and again that we viewers are the good people, precisely by over and over again presenting the bad people, the crooks and the thieves and the drug importers and the gangland murderers and the greedy corporations. And as you watch the news and you nod your head at all of these bad people that are paraded before you, the one thing that is perfectly clear is layer upon layer is being built into you. I'm not one of them. I'm not one of them. I'm one of the good people. Now, it's really important to be crystal clear on this. It, it is actually a good thing, by the way, to not import drugs. Or, or be a gang member who shoots people or enables greedy corporations. Okay, Those kinds of things and thousands like them are genuinely bad things and not doing that, well, that's a really actually good thing. Just like circumcision and the whole raft of old covenant laws are good things. They're, they're righteous behaviour. No, no, Paul is not anti-righteous behaviour. That's not the issue here. The issue is turning righteousness into self-righteousness. 
and he knows all about it. You, you see, he goes on to say that if anyone had a seriously impressive CV of old covenant credentials that they wanted to put confidence in, that they wanted to turn into self-righteousness, he could match them and then raise them some. Verse 5, circumcised on the eighth day. Yes, he was. A member of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, no less. A Hebrew born of Hebrews. As to the law, a Pharisee. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. As to righteousness under the law, blameless. He has done it all. His attributes are both inherited, his racial lineage and his circumcision when he was eight days old. But they're not only inherited, they're also achieved. He is a purist. He's a Pharisee when it comes to God's law. Not, not some slacker. He's ferociously committed. In fact, he's a man of profound sincerity and commitment. He is a hater of haters, persecuting those who oppose God's covenant. At least that's how it seemed from the perspective of before he met Christ. If anyone, Paul's saying, if anyone had good reason to turn their righteousness into self-righteousness, Paul did. He ticked every box. Now, of course, they are not the boxes that count for us, are they? We're a different time, a different place. And so we need to do a little bit of cultural translation because we don't want to miss the genius of what the Apostle's teaching us here. So what are the acts of righteousness right now that we are tempted to turn into self-righteousness? Well, right on the cultural surface at the moment is what you might call COVID righteousness. I, I, I was sent this as a, a meme. Listen to this. Even though I too have reason for confidence in the flesh, if anyone else has reason to be confident in the flesh, I have more vaccinated on the eighth day. A watcher of the daily press release of the tribe of Pfizer, a distancer of distances as to masks, a KN95, as to zeal, a persecutor of the anti-vaxxers, as to vaccination from the virus, double. Then there's environmental righteousness. Even though I too have reason for confidence in the flesh, if anyone else has reason to be confident in the flesh, I have more, marched in my eighth protest, a member of Greenpeace, of the tribe of Earth Justice, a recycler of recyclers, as to electricity, totally renewable, as to zeal, a hater of Adani, as to carbon footprint, less than zero. Then there's independent thinker righteousness. Even though I too have reason for confidence in the flesh, if anyone else has reason to be confident in the flesh, I have more read my eighth book on every topic. A member of 12 book clubs as to wokeism hated by many, as to political correctness, a despiser of the mindless sheeple around me. As to mass media, don't even get me started. Now, now again, it's really important. I, I, I'm trying to say it enough times so that you won't mishear this. The issue is absolutely not whether these are good things to do. Of course they are. COVID safety and creation care and independence of thought are all good things to do. That's the whole point, actually. Righteousness just are the good things to do. 
No, the issue is not the acts of righteousness. It's what we do with them. And the insidious spiritual infection of turning our righteousness into self-righteousness. Let me give you a kind of insight into this. You know where this is what's going on in your heart by where you get angry. There is so much anger in our culture at the moment. Outrage and its close cousin, cancel culture. And the reason that there is so much anger is because there is so much self-righteousness. Every one of us desperately wants to know that we're one of the good people. And when you take the grace of God out of the picture, all you've got left are your own attributes. Whether the attributes of traditional cultures, which are the inherited attributes, race and tribe, or the attributes of modern secular culture, which are the achievement attributes, competence and performance. But when you make your own righteous attributes your self-righteousness, it necessarily, automatically makes people who don't share your attributes the enemy, the bad people, the other. And the only response you'll have to hand to them is anger and contempt. And so I want to to give you a challenge to really allow the apostles' analysis of our hearts to hit the mark. I want to invite you in the next 24 hours to take some time to reflect on where it is that you get angry at other people. Where it is that you get angry at other people, especially perhaps on social or other media. Identify the topic that is at stake there. And all the different ways that the other person is failing. Correspondingly, therefore, the ways that you are righteous. And then I want you to do a task and invite you to actually take this seriously, to write out your version of verses 5 and 6. Write down your own personal, even though I too have reason for confidence in the flesh. Get it out there on the page, all of your righteousness. Write it down so that you have it in front of you. And when you've got deep clarity on that, you'll be ready to hear Paul's answer because he goes on to give us the secret of righteousness without self-righteousness. Point three. You see, there's only one way to hold together genuinely righteous behaviour and lifestyle without turning it into self-righteousness. And that is to know that your righteousness comes to you as a gift. Let me explain. Remember I said that the issue at stake in this is knowing that you're one of the good people and that you're not one of the bad people. And when you base that assessment on some attribute of your own, you can't help but turn that act or aspect of yourself into self-righteousness. And Paul knows it viscerally. He lived that intensely himself. And the only thing that broke the system for him was to know that his standing as one of the good people, the thing that actually came to function for him in his heart, came to him as a pure gift. It came to him from outside of himself. 
He was one of the good people quite apart from how excellent his achievements were and actually perhaps even more importantly, quite apart from how feeble and broken and wicked his achievements were. He broke the link between those two. You you see it there in verse 9 where he writes, and be found in him, Jesus. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but one that comes through, and I'm going to change the translation here. I think it's best if you look at the footnote, you'll see what it says. One that comes through the faithfulness of Christ. The righteousness from God based on faith. Do you see the brilliance of this move? Paul is neither self-loathing nor self-righteous. Those things just don't trouble him anymore because his righteousness, his standing, his knowledge of himself as okay, as not one of the bad people, just doesn't go up and down anymore based on anything about himself at all, whether good or bad. It's a gift to him. It's not his own. It's something that comes to him through the faithfulness of Christ. The great faithfulness that Jesus had to God in not regarding equality with God as something to be grasped, but emptying himself and humbling himself to death, even death on a cross. He became one of the bad people. Do you see? Jesus Christ, the eternal son of God, became sin. So that we, the bad people, desperately trying to sticky tape together a paper-thin, miserably feeble and fragile sense of ourselves, we might become the good people in him with a righteousness that is pure gift to us from God and therefore unalterable by us, simply ours by faith, by open hands, which let go of everything else that we might clutch and grasp and just receive Christ. And what that enables is the most astonishing reversal. You see it there in the second part of this paragraph. All of those attributes of Paul's, in the light of a gift righteousness instead of an attribute righteousness, Paul now regards all of those things which were in the past on the credit side of the ledger He now puts them on the other side. He is scathing about them as regards righteousness. They don't count for him one bit anymore. In in fact, and and the truth is, if you know yourself, if you know the wrestle of of this issue for yourself in either self-loathing or self-righteousness or flip-flopping between the two, if you get how deep this really goes, it won't surprise you to know that, I mean, this is the... Paul actually does it. It's the only time in Paul, I think it might be the only time in the Bible, Paul actually curses here. He swears. Uh, the, the translation tones it down a little bit, of course, because it's, you know, the Bible. But when Paul says he regards that list of attributes as rubbish, as the translation uh, that we have, the word is literally the S word. Um, actually, it is an S word in Greek. Skubala. Skubala. So let me give you a principle, actually. The more excellent the attribute of righteousness that you attempted to turn into self-righteousness, the fiercer you need to be in assessing it as crap as regards to you being one of the good people. 
You think that being COVID safe really is one of the defining issues of public duty and goodness today? That's fine. But it's critically important that you regard it as scubula, as regards your righteousness. And the more important you think that issue is, the more you have to regard it as crap as regards righteousness because your righteousness has got precisely nothing to do with your performance about COVID safety or anything else. It's a pure gift to you from God in Jesus Christ, which comes through bare, open-handed trust. And, And here's the point, you see, it's only when you get that It's only when you get that, that you will be spiritually ready. It will be spiritually safe for you to be as perfectly COVID conscious as you can possibly be. If you don't get this first, you'll become a self-righteous jerk about it. You'll you'll know that you've got it right because you may well disagree with anti-vaxxers, but you'll do so with humility and curiosity and not a whiff of self-righteousness, and you won't get angry at them at all. And it goes the other way around too. You think that that, 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 that's not important? Well, you won't get angry at people who press vaccination on you. You won't have turned your righteousness, whatever it is, into self-righteousness, and you'll know it because you won't get angry at people who disagree with you. You'll have a different agenda to your life. Which is where Paul concludes. You see, when the righteousness that is God's gift to you in Christ really does fill your heart, it changes everything. Not the things you do. Again, to be really clear, I hope I've said it enough times, that the love and the joy and the peace and the patience that you cultivate in your life, all of those virtues, the, the ambitions and the activities and the relationships that fill your days, all the good decisions that you make that are honoring to others and loving of others, all of that stuff will all still be in place. What will change is the colour that you paint them all. They'll find their right place in the tapestry. All of those things, more and more, you won't put to work trying to do something that they were never fit to do to be your righteousness. You won't fall into self-loathing when you fall short. You won't fall into self-righteousness when you hit the mark. There will be a stability. There'll be a poise. There'll be an excellence and humility, a strength and a gentleness about you all at the same time. Beautiful, beautiful, glorious living. Because all of it is oriented around your great meaning-making goal in life. Verse 10, I want to know Christ. Of course you do. He's your righteousness. What what else could constitute a goal in life, an ambition, the great burning ambition of your life? I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the sharing of his sufferings by becoming like him in his death if somehow I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Of course that's your ambition. Our great goal, the burning, bright, true north of our lives, to know Christ and to let go of any other attribute inherited or achieved as having the status of that which defines you. That's the power of his resurrection, you see. 
that the living and true God vindicated him. It's a power which enables you to share in his sufferings, abandoning all of the perks that come with being one of the good people by your own attributes and bonding together with birds of a feather, being part of an inner ring of co-achievers. You'll leave all of that behind, no matter what it costs, even when the cost of that is a mini death, knowing that you're becoming like him in his death. And that what lies before you in the miracle of God's grace is resurrection from the dead. In that ambition, with your heart filled with that gift, righteousness, is true excellence, it's true glory, and it's true freedom. Let's pray. Our gracious God and loving Heavenly Father, we lift our hearts to you in praise. Uh, we, 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 we shake our heads, we're ashamed at the times when we've pretended that we could cobble together some kind of righteousness of our own. And, and we shake our heads too at the ways in which we've plunged into self-loathing because we have caught a glimpse of our own failures. Lord, we don't need either of those things because you have given us your gift of righteousness. Fill our hearts, we pray. And so make it more and more true that the burning ambition of our lives is to know Christ, the power of his resurrection, even enabling us to share in his sufferings by becoming like him in his death, because in your grace, in your great power and grace, what lies before us is only resurrection. And it's in Jesus' name our glorious Jesus, crucified and raised, that we pray. Amen.